of the distinctive things about the brass plates point us toward Joseph of Egypt. You know, why not think that these plates go all the way back to him? Well then, if we look at the other relic that Nephi gets from Laban, the sword, we've got external evidence saying that that went back to Joseph of Egypt. So, Don Bradley, very excited to have you on here. I, I think I've told you this before, but over the last 10 or 15 years, there's really been a couple of books on, on the Book of Mormon that have been really, for me, going beyond looking at a doctrine or something anecdotal or commentary that have really made me look at the Book of Mormon in a different light. And, and your book, The Lost 116 Pages, is one of those books. And, yeah. and it was just, I felt like as I went through it, you know, it was just, I just, I, you know, it was, it was like I had a car brush. I was just, <laughs> I, I just wanted to keep consuming, you know, what was, yeah. what was in there. There was so much I was learning. And, I, and, I, and since I've read that book, or, book earlier this year, I've just, I just see it differently, right? I, I see the book differently. Um, both in terms of what was lost and, and kind of the, the trails, the breadcrumbs, if you will, of what we yeah. see in, in the book that we have now, but also in terms of the identity, the unbelievable tribal identity of, of the Lehites. Yeah. And, and, and really, I mean, you can look at the Mulekites as well. But, uh, and so that, that's been a lot of fun with me. So, or for, for me, but before we go into some of these topics, I really want to go into, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, kind of your process, right. Of, of how, cause obviously you don't, we don't know what we don't know that's lost, mm -hmm. but you, you've pulled in all these references from, from interviews and eyewitnesses and secondhand accounts and, and, and then, kind of tied those in with, I think, really going through the book, the Book of Mormon, and seeing, hey, this looks like it's got to be a trace yeah. of something that should have been in here before. Right. So, so I, like the, I like the word trace there that you used, because actually there's a great philosopher of history that I would recommend uh, for anyone who is interested, really interested in digging into history, or especially like doing history. Uh, his name was Robin Collingwood, and he wrote this wonderful book called The Idea of History. And most of it is like a history of history, right? the history of doing, the doing of history. Mm -hmm. But the, the final chapters, the epilogues to the book, um, they talk about really like how good history is done. What is history and how is it done? And he brings out the point that what we have in historical sources are not so much things that are about the past as they are traces of the past. They're actually remnants of the past, right? So, so you've got like leftovers of the past. So let's, let's take an example. So section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants, right, addresses 
a certain situation that was going on between Joseph Smith and Emma Smith over polygamy, right? Mm -hmm. And um, it's not, it has a number of cryptic things that it says, like it says to Emma, what well, says to Joseph, uh, we're talking to both of them, it switches back and forth, but it says um, that, like, uh, that Joseph doesn't have to uh, go through with a certain offer that he was commanded to make to Emma because it was a test, right? But it doesn't explain what the offer was. Well, why doesn't it explain what the offer was? It's important to know what the offer was, right? Mm -hmm. Well, because it wasn't written for us. It wasn't, it's not about the situation. This isn't a, a storybook telling about Joseph and Emma and their ordeal with polygamy. This is actually a remnant of the past. This is actually part of the events that was going on that was recorded so that we have a piece of that puzzle. So Joseph and Emma could both look at this revelation and they knew what it meant, right? But we have to take that actual fragment of the past and use it along with other fragments of the past, sort of arrange them like puzzle pieces, right? Like suppose you've got, I, I love to use this analogy, suppose you've got a, a thousand piece puzzle, right? And it's a picture puzzle, right? It shows a picture of something, um, but we've only got 150 pieces of the puzzle, right? Well, we're never gonna be able to see from that the entire picture. But we can put together maybe enough of the puzzle that we can tell what it was a picture of, right? We can get portions of the picture. We can get just right. And some of it we can infer, we can fill in some of the gaps, right? So that's sort of a general metaphorical way of talking about this, this process for, you know, piecing together like what was in the, the Book of Mormon's lost pages. The lost pages, by definition, they're lost, right? So, so how can we know what was in them? So um, it might be useful to know how I got started in the project because sure. that, that kind of tells some of the, well, about the purpose behind the project and some of the methodology. So about, I, I worked on this a long time. It wasn't like by any means the exclusive project that I was working on, but it was one of the big ones during this whole period. I started about maybe 15, 16 years ago, inquiring on what was in the lost pages. And the reason for that is that as I was studying the portions of the Book of Mormon that we have, I kept noticing that there were certain ways in which the, the text that we have would sort of build on itself. Like if, if you looked carefully at the language that's used in Mormon's abridgment, right? He would often have things in there that were alluding back to earlier narratives of Nephite history that he'd already told us. And so you could kind of chain, create a chain backward, right? From a later story to an earlier story that he was evoking. And then in that story, he may be evoking or building on still earlier narrations that he's given of, of events. And then we come to this giant wall <laughs> because the whole first part of Mormon's abridgment is lost. Joseph Smith tells us in the introduction to the 1830 you know, first edition of the Book of Mormon that the lost pages were Mormon's abridgment of the first part of Nephite history. Mm -hmm. And be, 
from that uh, introduction and uh, section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which addresses the lost pages and from the Book of Mormon text itself, we can see that it's that what was missing was the first four and a half centuries of Nephite history, the first four and a half centuries of Mormon's abridgment, because the small plates is the replacement for the missing text. And the small plates covers four and a half centuries, first four and a half centuries of Nephite history. So if you look at the total length of Mormon's abridgment, it's 920 years. That's, that's where he's abridging other people's records to get up to his time, 600 years before Christ, 320 years after Christ. So um, the half of uh, 920 years is 460. So we're missing almost exactly half, the first half essentially of Mormon's abridgment. And then we're supposed to just be able to pick up and understand exactly all the, all the messages, right? That Mormon is trying to get across in the extant part of his abridgment. Well, I don't know. I mean, pick up any other book, like tear out the first half of the book, have somebody give you a Cliff Notes version of the first half, then read the second half and see how well you understand all the details. <laughs> so, so my rationale initially, uh, other than the fact that just like, knowing what was in the lost pages would be fascinating. And I, I'd wondered about it ever since I was like 11 years old about, right? And I knew there were lost pages. I wondered what was in them. Um, but so I started collecting um, everything that I could find that had been written on what was in the lost pages. And that wasn't much. I mean, mostly at that point, it was just a, a chapter that had been written by John Tvetnas and then a few stray things here and there uh, and what Tvetnas had written was good. He had gone through the Book of Mormon text that we have, the, the available text, or as scholars call it, the extant text. Right? And he had um, identified clues of the kind that I'm talking about, where, uh, for instance, um, in Mosiah chapter 11, 10 or 11, um, it says that they were, the, um, it talks about a group traveling and they were traveling near the hill that was north of the land Shiloh. Mm -hmm. And this hill, it says, was the same hill that the children of Nephi had used as a resort at the time they had fled out of the land. So they had resorted to, they fled to this hill, right? And, uh, but it doesn't explain what it's talking about when it says the time that the children of Nephi had fled out of the land. It just assumes that we already know what that is. Well, the only way that our narrator can assume that we already know what that is, is if he's already told us about that event, right? So John Tvetnas reasoned that this is a remnant of a story that had been told by Mormon in the Lost Pages. And then um, I was able to gather other clues from our extant Book of Mormon text that show actually what that event was. So we can combine it actually with things that use basically just the same language about fleeing from the land, that the Nephites fleeing from the land in the Book of Omni, when it's talking about Mosiah the first leading them on an exodus from the land of Zarahemla I mean, from the land of uh, 
Nephi. Nephi to the land of Zarahemla, right? And it turns out this hill north of Shalom is situated right in between. It's a way station between those two points. And at, almost every time that pe groups travel between Nephi and Zarahemla, they stop at this hill, right? And so um, when we take, again, it's like what the extant text gives us what the, the small plates, because it's a skeletal version of the same history that was in the lost pages, it gives us puzzle pieces. And so we've got puzzle pieces there. We got puzzle pieces given by Mormon in his narrative flashbacks, right? How he's building on this lost narrative. We've got a few puzzle pieces given in some of the early revelations. Section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants that I already mentioned is most explicit about this, but also the revelations that were given in the immediate aftermath of the manuscript loss, most, most specifically section three of the Doctrine and Covenants, also section five, they have echoes of material that was in the lost pages where we can take things that are in those revelations and then take clues that we get from our available Book of Mormon text, put them together and they, they're, they're interlocking puzzle pieces, right? They start to give us more and more of a picture then of course, there are exter other external lines of evidence. So there's internal evidence, right? That's like small plates, Mormon's flashbacks and such. Um, then there are um, external evidences. The, the early revelations would be one, but also things that people say about what was in the lost pages. So we've got accounts. We've Talking got, about the early saints. Right, the early saints. We've got, well, yeah. I mean, in one case, in a couple cases, we've got things that were said by the early saints, but then said to other people outside the church who then recorded them. But for the most part, it's, it's the early saints themselves. Uh, so we've got things, uh, a couple little things that Joseph Smith himself told others that were later recorded. Uh, then we've got in particular, my favorite of all time is, uh, this Justice Smith Sr. interview that he gives to a non-Mormon neighbor in 1830 that the neighbor later publishes an account of. We've got uh, accounts from different people connected to Martin Harris. Martin Harris's brother, Emer Harris, gives us uh, a tidbit or a couple tidbits. Uh, and Martin Harris was, was the primary scribe for most of the Lost Pages? He was or the primary scribe for most of the Lost Pages. Yeah. And and not only that, he borrowed the manuscript and took it home with him. He had, you know, a four-day carriage ride to read the whole thing, right? He, he was probably reading, you know, most of what he hadn't, wasn't there to scribe for while he was down in Harmony for a couple months taking dictation for Joseph already. Then we have accounts saying that he, once he's got it home, he's reading it out loud to other people. Martin Harris knows what's in that thing better than anybody, I mean, possibly even better than Joseph Smith, since Joseph Smith dictates it once, mm -hmm. right? And then like, it's, it's gone. Yeah, well, right? obviously there's not another copy. Um, but right, but Martin himself is at greater leisure to read it. So Martin, uh, Martin also confides in um, a, a Kirtland friend and, and associate, Gladden Bishop, who gives a bunch of tidbits on a bunch of, again, more puzzle pieces. Mm -hmm. So the things we just take puzzle pieces from different sources, internal sources, external sources, put them together, 
a picture starts to emerge. What do you think, I mean, as you went through this process, what was maybe, uh, you know, as, as those, those, those puzzle pieces came in to focus, yeah. what for you was maybe the most significant thing that started to fill in the gaps for you? Um, so what, so do you mean like the most significant thing for like methodologically to like flesh out? No, I mean, I mean, actually what you saw was lost, but now fat now somewhat found right by, yeah. by, by you pulling all these pieces together. What, what, what changed in your mind, right? What, how did you look at the book of Mormon differently? What information was most, what did you think was most revealing? So, so what was most revealing, I would say, I, I'm, I'm going to answer that. If you want, I can give a different kind of answer if you want me to frame the answer from a different angle. No, you roll how you want. You're good. Right now from the angle of um, like not, a, not just a specific, well, actually, I'll get, I'm going to give you two different kinds of answers. Okay, okay let's go with two. <laughs> I'm going to give you first an answer based on sort of the pattern of data, not a specific data point, not one particular finding, but the fact that there were a number of findings that had what, what scholars call consilience, which literally means like a jumping together, right? Mm -hmm. So there were a bunch of evidences that just pointed in the same direction, right? They, they just all, it's like a bunch of arrows, right? All pointing the same way. And, and that was, um, that they all pointed to the Book of Mormon, that the Nephite history being a kind of replication of the story of biblical Israel. So, so I started finding different things. Uh, you know, I would look at evidence for what was in the lost pages and I would notice that there were heavy Exodus themes in what I was finding. Right. So it was like the, the, the biblical Exodus. Mm -hmm. Right. Then you had um, like things where strangely, surprisingly, it pointed to a sort of, a sort of conquest theme even. So when the, when the biblical Israelites arrive in their promised land, they do what's, what's known as the conquest. Right. Um, and those, even though it doesn't play out in the same way, the Book of Mormon narrative actually evokes similar themes to that. Um, you've got, um, you know, you've got Nephi uh, coming out in these different fragments from the Lost Pages as a kind of uh, a second king, like a new King David, right? So, so David. Uh, had been from the line of Judah, right? Establishing a new sacred dynasty. Well, Nephi becomes sort of the David of the line of Joseph, right? And just uh, over and over, there were these themes. Well, another one, another big one that I think we're going to talk more about later is um, that, of course, in biblical Israel, you have the you have Jacob's sons coming out to be coming out to found 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. That hasn't been much commented on a little bit, but if you look at the number of tribes that come out from Lehi's family, right, you've got them enumerated always uh, as uh, 
the uh, you know the Lamanites, Lemuelites, uh, and Ishmaelites, uh, but also as the uh, you know the Nephites, um, Jacobites, Josephites. Wait, who am I missing? Zoramites. Zoramites, yes. Um, so um, so you've got three on one hand and four on the other, right? So you've got seven tribes, seven. So just like you have 12 tribes of Israel, you have seven tribes of Lehi, mm-hmm. right? Which is a 12 being one sacred number that's composed of like three and four, you know, mm-hmm. their product from multiplying them and seven being this other sacred number that's, you know, composed of three and four, their sum by adding them. And um, it's, like the it's like Lehi is founding a new Israel or like a sub Israel right under the the umbrella of the original Israel of twelve tribes. Well, that and what follows on that, I think, you know, is so so fascinating with the Book of Mormon is you have the fall of Judah with with yeah. Babylon right, right? and right. the king Zedekiah right. You have the fall of the dynasty, the Judaic dynasty. Right. And then as Lehi leaves, along with these artifacts and, and these other things, you have the rise of right. a Josephite dynasty. Right. 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 And, and of course, those are the two kingdoms, right? You've got Judah in the south. You've got Ephraim or the northern kingdom of Israel in the north that is ruled by Ephraimite kings. Right. That, right. And, then, and then they come back to the Americas and who do the Josephites meet up with? The, Ju- the Judaic Mulekites who are subordinate now to the Josephites. It is pretty, yeah. pretty interesting. Yeah, it, it really is wild. And, and I, as you know, like in, in the book, I, I, I flesh out some of these themes in depth and, and just there's, there's a, there's an incredible complexity, right. To what's going on with the, the, the biblical narratives, the narratives of biblical Israel when those narratives get extended into, you know, Book of Mormon Israel, um, it's it's like um, it really is like the Book of Mormon is continuing the story of the Bible, right? The Book mm-hmm. of Mormon is continuing the story of biblical Israel in a new land, and certain things in that story get flipped, right? They get inverted, you know, uh, like you're talking about, but um, very much. Um, you know, the, there's this commonwealth of Judah in the old world, you know, prior to, uh, up to Lehi's time, right, where you originally you've got a, a Davidic, a sacred monarchy, right, the monarchy, the dynasty of David, you've got, you know, the temple, Solomon's temple in the sacred city, right, Jerusalem in their, their sacred promised land, right, the land of Judea, uh, in their temple, you have you know, a set of sacred artifacts associated with the Ark of the Covenant. You go, and, and these, you've got the, the high priestly, the priesthood of, of Aaron with the high priest. When you go to the new world with this group, just all these things collapse, right? At the same time with the Babylonian invasion, you've got, you know, the Ark of the Covenant goes missing, right? With its sacred relics that are the, the like the center of the temple representing the, the divine presence. Solomon's temple gets destroyed. The Davidic dynasty gets ended with the, the death, well, the death of Zedekiah's sons, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
and um, you know the the Jews are kicked out of their promised land. Their sacred city is destroyed. But you go to the New World, and now you've got a new not Judahite promised land, but a new Josephite promised land in which there's a new sacred temple city, right? Where you've got a new temple that's modeled on Solomon's temple. And then, you know, in that temple, you've got sacred relics that actually, as I show in the book, line up with the sacred relics of the biblical high priest and the Ark of the Covenant and systematically replace those. And so, You've got the end of one Commonwealth of Israel, but then the beginning of another one that just takes over afterward. This Commonwealth of Judah is done, but this Commonwealth of Joseph starts up. And yeah, it's, it's, th there are these deep riches in the Book of Mormon, these, these complexities that, that I think the more we dig, right, the more we find is, is there. Yeah, it's like a passing of the torch in, in a sense, and, you know, mm -hmm. that, that happens there. There. The uh, one thing you had said there about early on the how how Joseph saw the Book of Mormon, right? This was not a New Testament type of book, even though you've got the term Jesus Christ everywhere and it's very very Christian. He saw this, you point out, as as very much an Old Testament Israelite tool and 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 uh, and, and record. Yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't like adding this as a new religion. The Book of Mormon was not to create a new religion, but he was the prophet to bring about the restoration of Israel through through the book. Right. So, so this. Uh, so, I actually wrote my. I, I did my master's thesis actually on um, an overlapping topic. So, I included some of the same some of the arguments about the lost pages. Uh, most of that's just in the book, but some of that is in this. Thesis, but the thesis looked at um, the early restoration, right? Early Mormonism in a context of things that were going on in the 1820s in the US and how Joseph Smith and Martin Harris and others around them first understood the Book of Mormon as it was emerging in that context. And so uh, this, this is another thing that gives us some clues to what was in the lost pages is actually to look at what were Martin Harris and Joseph Smith, right? The people who are most familiar with the contents of these pages, mm -hmm. what were they saying to other people at that time about what was in the book, what the book was about? Joseph during that time uh, is telling people down in Harmony, Pennsylvania, that uh, he would, uh, he was a prophet sent by God to gather the Jews, right? And so he appears to have seen the Book of Mormon at the time as primarily, as you said, involved in the restoration of Israel, right? Which, which again, suggests that its themes really are these, these heavy Israelite themes that I'm seeing in the different clues, these different puzzle pieces to the missing stories of the Book of Mormon. Uh, Martin Harris, during the same time period, tells uh, John H. Gilbert, who later goes on to become the uh, printer, or the, the typesetter, rather, for the first edition of the Book of Mormon, uh, he tells John H. Gilbert that the book would be a book to, quote-unquote, confirm the Old Testament. And, and Gilbert 
who had a fantastic memory. By the way, decades later, he could remember all kinds of details about the Book of Mormon's original manuscript that we can now confirm by looking at the Book of Mormon's original manuscript, right? Um, so uh, Gilbert, um, Gilbert says that Martin Harris was not talking about this at the time as a new religion, right? Martin doesn't seem to be really aware of what fully is going to emerge from this book. He's seeing it primarily as a book that's focused on these Israelite themes of loss and restoration. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fascinating. Of course, it just it ties right in, on, you know, so much with what uh, we're kind of coming full circle on this now. With you know, going back to President Benson talking about how the people are cursed because they haven't remembered the New Covenant, which is the Book of Mormon, and now President Nelson talking so much about the gathering of Israel, and mm -hmm. and I mean that's the Book of Mormon is that tool. That's what it always was. Yeah. Is for that gathering. I wanted to go over this a little bit more on, on one of the things that fascinated me from your book was the, the really almost extreme identity of the Lehites as, as a Josephite tribe. And, and uh, mm -hmm. some of the things that I think that, that for me, in my mind, you know, really changed that is, First of all, a clearer understanding of why the perhaps the, the brass plates are written in Egyptian. Mm. And then, of course, the Book of Mormon is written in Egyptian. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think for most people, we see that and we say, well, okay, well, maybe, you know, we know that was done in, in a lot of different languages. People would, 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 would have different scribes. A king would have three or four or five different scribes that would that would translate into different languages some of their documents, especially uh, 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 religious documents. But and then we think about also the fact that it looks like they could they could fit a lot more right with the Egyptian hieroglyphics, uh, a lot more a lot more of their Hebrew thought going into these these uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics. But as you say in the book, if we look at this as Josephite records. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think you say in here somewhere, I don't know if you're quoting someone, but that those brass plates very well may have been originated. The original author was Joseph. Yeah. And, and then that bringing that all the way down to an Ephraimite, it looks like Laban. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and this this kind of stuff I find just really fascinating. Um, so there is this is a case where we've got uh, internal at, internal evidence within the Book of Mormon text that then aligns with external evidence that we're getting from other 19th century sources that are talking about the Book of Mormon, uh, talking about specifically uh, referring to the lost pages. Um, so first, um, well, okay. So Nephi gets multiple relics, of course, from Laban. He gets the brass plates. He also gets the sword, right? That we call the sword of Laban. And that both the brass plates and the sword are handed down actually as regal relics in Nephi's line. They're handed down through his dynasty. They're dynastic relics, right? Um, 
So when we look at what the extant Book of Mormon text says about the brass plates, it tells us several things about the brass plates that are distinctive, right? That make this record distinctive, let's say compared to the Bible, right? It's, it's supposed to be an overlapping record with the Bible to, to a great extent, at least the same as the Bible, but in what ways is it distinctive? Well, um, the Book of Mormon text tells us that uh, this record was not kept by uh, descendants of Judah, as we find with the, most of the biblical texts, right, are written by Judahites um, or, or Jews, right? The um, brass plates were actually kept by Joseph's line. They were handed down, we're told, um, in the Book of Mormon, uh, from Joseph all the way down to Laban, and uh, Laban, you know, is the descendant of Joseph, right, we're told. Um, so, um, well, it doesn't say explicitly that they're handed down from Joseph, but it says that uh, they're kept in the lineage of Joseph, right? Laban and his fathers had them. It tells us that Laban was a descendant of Joseph. And then it tells us, actually, there is a place where it says uh, Laban was a descendant of Joseph, wherefore he kept, mm -hmm. he had the records, right? Mm -hmm. Which suggests that um, the records could go, they're handed down from Joseph, right? Right. Um, another Joseph connection, and so, hold on, so the picture I'm going to be painting here is to show that all, all the most, almost all the distinctive things about the brass plates have directly to do with Joseph, right? So we first have they're kept in the lineage of Joseph, right? Second, not surprisingly, then they have Joseph's genealogy in them. In fact, they have Joseph's genealogy in them to such a degree of detail that the genealogy brings us all the way down to the time of Laban and Lehi. Well, Joseph, if you look at the biblical chronology, would have lived about 1700 BC, and Laban and Lehi are around 600 BC. That's about 1100 years. That's a lot of genealogy, right? And yet the brass plates have a comprehensive enough genealogy of Joseph's lineage that Lehi can locate his own line and plug it into that genealogy. So it's got quite a, a Joseph genealogy in there. So mm -hmm. again, the record is distinctively connected with the lineage of Joseph. Okay? Then we have unique prophets in the, um, in the brass plates who are not talked about in uh, the Bible. And so Zenus uh, and Zenoch, I, I forget, I'm forgetting offhand where this passage is. I cite it in the book and I should remember it, but um, there's a passage where it says, and it may be Christ saying it in third Nephi, but it actually, there's a passage that actually identifies Zenus and Zenoch as having been descendants of Joseph. Hmm. So this is interesting, right? Because not only are these prophets that are not in the, the book of the Jews, as the book of Mormon calls it, right? The Bible, right? The, the Judahite record, they're, they're prophets who probably aren't in the Judahite record because they're Josephite prophets, right? And this record, the brass plates, has to do with the Josephites in particular. Um, another, in many ways, a rival. What? In many ways, a rival. Right. Right, right. 
So a fourth connection of the, a fourth distinction of the brass plates that connects them with Joseph is they have firsthand prophecies of Joseph, right? Written in Egypt uh, that aren't contained in the Bible. So they've got distinctive Josephite content that stretches all the way down to Laban, right? And his, the, who, whose genealogy they, they give from Joseph all the way down to him and Lehi, right? But they've also got uh, Josephite content that starts as early as Joseph himself. So you've got distinctive Josephite content that stretches all the way from Joseph, 1700 BC, his first person prophecies to Lehi's time, 600 BC. And you've got various other Joseph distinctives in this record. Why? Why is this record so Joseph heavy? Well, if we look at the one other distinctive aspect of the brass plates, I think it gives us a great big clue. And that's they're kept, it tells us, um, I think it's in Mosiah 1, uh, tells us that the brass plates are kept in Egyptian. Yes. Well, Egyptian, as in the language of Joseph of Egypt, like the, the language that he presumably would have been writing in, or certainly could have been writing in. The, the, the Genesis account makes clear that Joseph had learned the Egyptian language. He'd become proficient in Egyptian, right? Mm -hmm. And so all five of the distinctive things about the brass plates point us toward Joseph of Egypt. And so, um, you know, why not think that these plates go all the way back to him? Well, then that's, that's internal Book of Mormon evidence. If we look at the other relic that Nephi gets from Laban, the sword, we've got external evidence saying that that went back to Joseph of Egypt. So I mentioned earlier, Martin Harris is the guy who knows, you know, should know the, the lost pages narrative better than anyone. Well, he's got a close associate in Kirtland, Gladden Bishop, who uh, we know he we know he tells things about the lost pages too, because Gladden Bishop publishes a description of things that Martin Harris told him about the physical appearance of the lost pages, um, and then Gladden Bishop also tells a number of things about the Book of Mormon that we have from other sources coming from Martin Harris and from nobody else. So for instance, Martin Harris gives the dimensions of the plates differently than anybody else. He's the only person to say that they're only four, the stack is only four inches high, right? When others put it higher than that, except for Gladden Bishop, who puts it at the same exact dimensions that Martin does, right? Well, he's friends with Martin, like he's talking to Martin. Um, he, Gladden Bishop tells us uh, while he's while he's a close friend of Martin in 1850, that um, the sword of Laban had actually originally been made or caused to be made. Uh, Joseph had caused it to be made in Egypt, so that it could be used later during the Israelite conquest of the Promised Land when they leave Egypt. And there are other things as as. That, that's, that's like wild, but there are other things in the Book of Mormon narrative that fit with that. And again, other puzzle pieces that go with it. 
And it goes with the internal evidence that we have that the brass plates handed down to Laban go all the way back to Joseph. So yeah, That's there's a very, very heavy Joseph theme, right? In, in the book, right? Right down to these relics of Joseph end up in the hands of Lehi and ultimately Nephi and his dynasty. So Nephi becomes an heir of Joseph. He's got the relics of Joseph. And you think about Nephi is a kind of new Joseph, right? He's a younger brother whose older brothers are envious of him and try to slay him. He's bound and left to the wild beasts. Right, and so on. He's a new Joseph and he, he carries this authority of Joseph. He carries these relics of Joseph and hands them down through a new Josephite dynasty. Yeah, that's... That's pretty. It, it, I'm trying to think in the old in Genesis toward the end there if uh, there's a reference to this or not. But you say that Joseph built, had the sword made for the conquest of the promised land. Then, therefore, knowing it would seem like that they were going to go to the promised land or back to the promised land, and of course his his bones are carried right back back to the promised land his bones are carried at his own request yeah we know that joseph knew they were going back to the promised land because joseph himself says it this is how the book of genesis ends genesis ends with joseph on his deathbed mm-hmm. putting his brothers under covenant that they will carry he says god will surely lead you back he will right. surely lead you out out of egypt when you go you got to take my bones with you and bury them in our promised land. And so the idea of Joseph having a sword made would be Joseph's having a sword made because he's anticipating that it needs to be used in the conquest. This account from Gladden Bishop, I forgot to mention, says that the sword was used in the conquest by Joshua, who leads the Israelite conquest and who is a descendant of Joseph. He's an Ephraimite. And so if this account is, is correct, it would explain also why Laban inherits the sword. And it would show that Laban would be a descendant, actually, it, he would be an Ephraimite. Sure. He would be a descendant of Joshua. So the sword would come down to him. So it just, yeah. that's just fascinating. And then, <laughs> and then, of course, again, going back to Joseph's bones, that you could say is a precursor to the Nephites, the Lehites, carrying their Josephite records on their exodus, right? right? Because not only do they get the manna and, and, and Aaron's rod and all these other things along the way, but the whole time as they leave, they are leaving with the relics, the, the Josephite relics, his right. bones, right? Being, right? being carried to the promised land. There are connections here that get really, really wild, but they're, they're, they're grounded right in the, in the narratives. But I, uh, there's a part in the book where I talk about uh, uh, a book um, that addresses uh, called, uh, I think it's called Joseph's Bones, um, but it's, um, it talks about a, a lot about this, these incidents, right? It's not a Latter-day Saint book, it's by a Jewish author. Um, and it's about you know, Joseph making his family promise to take his remains back to the promised land and how that prefigures the conquest and is connected with different aspects of what Joshua does and so on. And um, he points out that in Jewish tradition, in Jewish reading of the Torah, 
they talk about the um, there being two arcs, not just one arc. Mm. You have the, the arc of the covenant. If you look at the term that's used there for arc, uh, the uh, Jewish, the Hebrew term, uh, it's it's not the same as like the Ark of Noah. It's a different mm. word altogether, right? Um, but it is the same term that's used for Joseph's coffin, which in in our Bible is translated as I think coffin, but it's not translated as Ark. But uh, I think the word is Aron. But but um, they point out that, and it's a very rare word in the Hebrew Bible. It's only used in one other place, and that's, that's in a temple context. But um, they point out that the Israelites on their exodus, they went forth carrying the Ark of the Covenant, right? That's holding the stone tablets uh, and maybe other of the, the Jewish sacred relics, right? Mm-hmm. And beside it, they're carrying the Ark of Joseph, right? that these, these things are both in the Hebrew, they're the same term and they're being carried, the Israelites are carrying both of them as they go forth on their exodus. And, um, you know, something that I, that I was interested in exploring but ended up not going into the book is, I mean, I actually draw some connections between the, well, this did go into the book, between the, um, the Jewish sacred relics in their very specifics and the Ark of the Covenant relics, right, and their specifics, and the the Nephite sacred relics, including the brass plates, right, and the sort of Laban. So, for instance, I talk about how um, the in the case of the um, biblical Ark of the Covenant, you have stone tablets in an Ark of gold, right, and um, the stone box that Joseph Smith finds the gold plates in, Martin Harris refers to it as an ark, okay? And it has tablets in it also, right? Mm-hmm. We don't call them tablets, we call them plates. But um, so in the um, biblical, with the biblical Ark of the Covenant, you have stone tablets and an ark of gold. In the Book of Mormon ark here, you have golden tablets in an arc of stone, right? So you have an inversion there, beautiful inversion. Sure. And um, the, um, you know, if, if Joseph's body was carried out in this arc, right? And we have Joseph relics being carried out also like the, the brass plates that he had started, maybe they're actually carried out in Joseph's arc, so to speak, right? That maybe they're actually in his coffin. Mm. I mean, I, I, I didn't put that in the book, but it's something that that's I interesting. would be interesting to explore further. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Um, going toward the physical here, as we yeah. have just done here, looking at these items, uh, another thing that really fascinated me that I didn't know about. I, I, I don't know why I didn't know this, but I, I did not know that there were physical seals, you know, pages in the gold plates from at least from Moroni and from the brother of Jared. And when we talk about the record being sealed up, I mean, sure, we can look at the book of Revelation and authority with a seal, and we can talk about being closed up until a time in the future, all that's true. You can use that term for seal, but but you bring up the actual physical seal yeah. of at least these two men. 
that were found that, that, that were part of the, the gold plates. Yeah. So this, this stuff, I, I just eat this stuff up. I love it. <laughs> yeah, right? you, this, it's incredible. <laughs> History for me, it, it's solving mysteries, right? It's detective work, you know, and like there are wild mysteries here. They're, they're fascinating things that, that nobody, I don't think anybody would have like dreamed up, you know? So we have, it turns out we have a number of very, interesting, often very detailed accounts from about the early restoration, right? About the plates, about their coming forth. And um, one of these accounts that I mentioned earlier is an interview, an extensive interview that was done by a Palmyra uh, resident, Fayette Latham, who's a young man at the time, became a Palmyra businessman. Um, he's actually a distant cousin of uh, Martin Harris's uh, mother, Rhoda Latham. Um, Fayette Latham, in 1830, early 1830, he's hearing all the buzz in town about the Book of Mormon, right? A new book, uh, a new book of scriptures being printed in town, you know. Um, and he, he really wants to learn more about it. He and one of his cousins, uh, Jacob Ramsdale, they want to know more, but the book's not off the press yet. So they can't just go buy it. So they show up at the Joseph Smith Senior Home and they ask about it. Well, Joseph Jr. now is down in uh, Harmony, Pennsylvania again, so he can tend to his farm, right? So Joseph Jr. gives the guy, gives these two an extensive account, first of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, and then of the narrative of the Book of Mormon. And um, the the narrative that he gives can be checked. It has has plainly some places where it's, it's garbled, right? Where we can see what he was probably told and then how he, how he misheard it or misunderstood it. But there are also places where he just nails details that he couldn't have known in any other possible way than by talking, by the, than by talking with an insider, right? So um, he doesn't publish his account until a good while after he publishes it later in the newspaper. But at the time that his account is published, even though it's a good while later, it's, bef- it's well before any of the other accounts are published that confirm many of the details in his account, right? Mm-hmm. So for instance, um, uh, Royal Skousen, the director of the Book of Mormon Critical Text Project, mm-hmm. has, you know, he's done extensive study of the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon and he has been able to answer an, a sort of old question that Latter-day Saint scholars have had about the, the translation of the Book of Mormon. And that is, when Joseph Smith loses the initial Book of Mormon manuscript, where does he pick up the translation? Does he pick up where he left off? Or does he go back to the chronological beginning, do first Nephi, do you know, the small plates, to plug in to replace the lost pages and then go on from there to the end, right? Um, and so Roskowson has shown that there's, there's very good evidence from the manuscripts that actually Joseph picks up where he had left off, mm-hmm. goes through the end of Moroni, 
then does the replacement, right? The, small you know, plates. Translates small plates, right? So there are two historical accounts that tell us this. One is from Joseph Smith's sister in 1893, uh, his sister Catherine, where she's interviewed and she says that um, the angel instructed Joseph to pick up where he left off in the translation. About a quarter of a century before that, Fayette Latham reports what he had heard from Joseph's father, another family member, and says that Joseph had been told to pick up the translation where he'd left off, right? So, you know, long before any other confirmatory information was around, Fayette Latham was telling us what we can confirm later from another family member's account and from the manuscript itself. There are, there are a bunch of things like this where Fayette Latham nails it, right? So I'm just laying out why, why to think this account is credible, right? So um, the Joseph Smith Sr. gives Fayette Latham uh, a description of the, the relics themselves that Joseph gets from the stone box. And this includes the plates, right? And he says that on the top plate, there were uh, engravings that, that Latham remembers him saying were, they were the, the, he calls them the emblems of masonry, right? Now, um, Freemasonry has various emblems or, or symbols, right? Uh, there are two most prominent symbols of Freemasonry by which it's known um, and that are used, actually placed on the altar of every Masonic lodge on top of a sacred book, usually the Bible, right? And, and, they, and it's in their symbol. Right, and it's in their, their fundamental symbol. Yeah. It's the compass and the square. Right. And so um, Fayette Latham, you know, reporting from Joseph Smith Sr. is suggesting minimally that, that compass and square were on the top plate of the golden plates, right, which would have a, um, a significance for Latter-day Saints, right, that, mm -hmm. that it wouldn't have for others. Um, but there are also without going into this in too much detail because it, it takes a lot of details, you know, to lay this one out. And it's in the book, even with diagrams of, of what this may have looked like. But the descriptions were given uh, from Lucy Max Smith and from Joseph Senior, who, who, who saw the interpreters, right? That came with the plates. Uh, Joseph Senior tells us that the interpreters were set on top of the plates. Right, so, so you've got this top plate has these symbols on it, but it also has the interpreter set on top of it. And based on the descriptions that were given from them of the interpreters themselves, they appear to have triangular shapes of an equilateral triangle and a right triangle that correspond to a compass, which is a, a, um, like a 60 degree angle. It's the same angle as an equilateral triangle and a square, which is a 90 degree angle, right? Uh, right triangle is, is the same, is a 90 degree angle, same as a square. So um, the, um, and, and there, again, which I, I lay this out better 
than I can here now in the book, right? But there's reason to believe that the compass and square were actually laid on top of each other over the accompanying engravings of compass and square, which probably also were engraved one on top of the other, right? And so we have like sacred symbols placed atop each other to provide a kind of physical seal. So in the um, Book of Ether, uh, it talks about how when the brother Jared had had his experience with God up on Mount Shalom, he has given the interpreters. This is where the interpreters come from originally, right? Mm -hmm. When he seals up his own record, he seals up the interpreters with his record. Now, it's not really clear offhand what mental image that's supposed to evoke. What are we supposed to picture? What, what does it mean for the, the interpreters to be sealed, right? Well, I actually suggest uh, in how I lay this out in the book that um, when the compass and the square shaped interpreters are overlaid on top of each other, they form a kind of seal, mm -hmm. right? Um, and we, we've got practices in the ancient world of, you know, sealing up documents. We've got um, like, like the frequent use in various cultures of circular symbolic seals, right? Um, and I think that, I, I think that's what we're dealing with here, right? Is that there's there are actual physical inscriptions on the plates that constitute a seal. And then as a further seal, the interpreters are sealed up with the plates in that they're placed you know, um, in congruity with those symbols atop each other to form their own seal. So they're sealed up with the plates. And then, um, <laughs> There's the whole uh, issue of the, um, there's a symbol that's on, apparently on the back of the plates. And we get descriptions of this from various figures. Um, so we get um, uh, Charles Anthon, most notably. So people are familiar with the story, of course, of Martin Harris taking engraving, copying, uh, well, Joseph copying engravings off of the plates and then uh, Martin taking them to Charles Anthon and other scholars. So um, he actually first takes them to uh, a scholar and politician uh, named Luther Bradish, who uh, lives in Albany, who had relatives, a brother in Palmyra, who was a, a neighbor to Martin Harris. Um, and then later he takes the, the symbols to uh, Charles Anthon and so we get descriptions from the neighbors who remembered seeing these symbols uh, when Martin had this transcript. And then uh, we get uh, descriptions of what uh, Luther Bradish said about the, uh, this transcription, the symbol that was transcribed there. And then we get uh, three letters written by Charles Anthon where he describes the symbol. So we've got a number of descriptions of this, and uh, one of which actually comes from Joseph Smith Sr. Um, and um, from what we're told, so, so, so just to clear up some confusion, people are used to seeing a little scrap of paper known as the characters document yes. and having that identified as the Anthon transcript. 
And the, the reason that that people, the reason that that gets identified as the Anthem transcript is that is in fact a transcript of characters off of the Book of Mormon plates. And so people assume that because that is from the Book of Mormon plates, that is the transcript that's taken to Charles Anthem. However, when you look at every single one of those accounts that I mentioned describing the transcript taken to Charles Anthem, the character's document doesn't fit the description of any of them, right? The, those descriptions all indicate that there was a circular seal, uh, a, a giant circle, right, with uh, various astronomical symbols like sun, moon, and stars, right, as well as characters. And so it appears that there was more than one transcript that Joseph makes from the plates. Uh, he, he apparently transcribes a couple different plates, right? But one of these, the one with the funky symbols, according to uh, one of our, one or two of our accounts, is actually taken from the very back plate. So on the front plate, you recall, or, or we don't know which side was, would have been considered the front necessarily in these languages, but on the top plate, mm -hmm. right? you've got compass and square and maybe other quote unquote Masonic symbols, right? And the interpreters placed over those. On the, on the, what is the bottom of the plates in the stack, the way that they're set in the stone box, right? You've got these funky circular, this funky circular symbol with all these astronomical designs and characters from various alphabets as Anthony describes it, right? And, um, uh, based on the, the descriptions that uh, were given there, it, it looks like this would be more likely to be not a seal created by one of the Nephite authors, but actually by uh, a Jaredite. So again, we're told in the Book of Ether that the brother of Jared's record, he, he, he writes an account himself. This is not Ether's record, of the Jaredites. This is the brother of Jared's record of his theophany mm -hmm. that he writes at the time and seals up, right? Um, that that if he if he's sealing it up, then apparently based on our precedent for what it means for the, the, the Moroni to seal the record at the front, right? Which is at least partly involves putting engravings on it, mm -hmm. symbols. You know, there appears it appears that the brother of Jared puts a different sort of more elaborate seal on his own record, which 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 various people tell us is the back, the bottom part of the plates. I mean, this is uh, David Whitmer says this, for instance, he says the top part was the part that you could just leaf through. But the bottom part is sealed. It has it's sealed, I think, in multiple senses. It has actually like a physical band wrapping it shut, which is the sense of sealing that we're more used to. Which would make sense with the brother of Jared, where a lot of those writings had to be hold, held back. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, the, um, the Jaredite, so, so Charles Anthon was able to recognize Egyptian characters in part of the, uh, what had been transcribed that's brought to him. So I think this is, you know, there was part of the Egyptian record is brought to him right? Part of the Nephite record is brought to right. him. Um, but part of it, he says, is in not Egyptian, but he identifies several other ancient languages that it has characters from. Well, 
you know, the, the narrative given by the brother of Jared is that his people came out before the confounding of the languages at the Tower of Babel. So they would be, apparently, they'd be using like the Adamic language, right? So it might make sense from that perspective that it would have characters that appear to be from various scripts. In mm -hmm. any case, what Anthon's describing, the characters associated with that circular symbol, that's not Egyptian, that's something else. Right. What would that something else be? It's not the Nephite record, it's, it's a Jaredite record. Right, so it's possible then also that, that, I think we talked about this before, but that perhaps, as you just said, there could be some, some a facsimile of that brother of Jared seal that is brought, because there are several different descriptions of, of what was you brought to Charles Anthon, right? And so, yeah. and then maybe there was either something from Moroni's sealed plate or uh, that could have been characters on there or, or maybe something from the Nephite, from the Mormon's record abridgment, or even the small plates, who knows, that, that, would, have been, that would have been along with that perhaps. Yeah. I, th this though, I, it just the, the, the idea of this, I want to just make a couple comments on this. First of all, going back to the, 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 the one on top, the seal on top, just another idea on that, the Star of David. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, that's two triangles. Right. Just, right. Who knows? You know, right. you can right. get a lot of, like you said, you can go a lot of different ways with this. But, yeah. um, and, and, and then. It was identified, if I could just comment on that. Sure. That the Star of David, especially the Star of David pictured inside a circle, um, was identified as a seal during like the in medieval Judaism and in, in the Kabbalistic tradition, which has deep roots, that right mystical tradition in Judaism, that it was it was a seal that was identified with David. It was also identified with Solomon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so the Davidic kings. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then the other one is, is the, uh, you know, we'll call it the brother of Jared seal here. Um, just the way it was described, you know, one, someone said it looked a lot like an Aztec calendar. Yeah. Now I'm not making any jumps to that at all. I don't care about the geography or location yeah. or, or anything like that, but, but just to give a picture in people's mind, yeah. right. It, it, it looks like that one where you've got the, the, the face of the sun in, in the yeah. center and, and then rays coming out. So that you had you had uh, compartments, so to speak, yeah. right? right? It would be angled coming out, and then it had concentric circles right. around it, and and then around the sun. Well, you talked about the 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 symbols of the sun, the moon, and the stars around the sun. Apparently, it had it had twenty four circles yeah. right around the sun, with something to the effect of. A half moon is one, and then a star, and then a half moon, and then a star, and then a half moon and the star, which would give you twelve and twelve, which is a whole different discussion here. Mm -hmm. But, but uh, um, you know that you've got twenty-four Jaredite plates. Yeah, right. Right. You, you've, right. you, twenty-four is oftentimes used uh, with the Jews as judgment or or the word of God. The, mm -hmm. the, the Torah could even be used, you know, for, for 24 on that in, in terms of commandments. And, and, and then of course, around the, in the book of revelation, I think you bring this up in the book, you know, in the book of revelation, you have the throne of God at the center. Yeah. And then you have the, the 24 seats with 24 elders sitting on it. So actually I should have, I should have brought up that they were surrounding 
the throne of God. I just mentioned the 24 elders. I don't think yeah. I mentioned that they're surrounding the throne. So you'd have effectively a circle of the 24 right. around the center point. I mean, God being like the sun, right? That the sure. glory in the middle. And yeah. the interesting thing there is, as I read the book of Revelation, what I see is the same thing I read in Abraham 3, which, which, is, which also goes through uh, a cosmology, right? Uh, of, of what it's, to me, it's priesthood, right? It, it's a hierarchical structure of priesthood that you have. You have, you have the Sanhedrin, which is really 23, but it's a place of judgment. It's usually built from the 12 from the people and then another 11 or 12 that come from the aristocracy or, or, or the leaders. And then the biggest one to me in looking at priesthood is the 24 courses of the priests, that are there, um, that are assigned to the temple, right? And, and so they go through, uh, Hugh Nibley talks about one eternal round, and he uses that with a facsimile number two, and, and, and you can look at that as one day, right? The sun, mm -hmm. the sun going around the earth, if you, they would have thought it back then, or you can look at it as one year, yeah. right? And so you've got the 24 courses going in the one round, in the eternal round, that are going around the throne of God. And uh, it just, that, that's just fun stuff. That's yeah. really fun stuff. Yeah. Trying to understand that, trying to picture that symbol and then understand the symbolism of it, that, mm -hmm. that seal, like is, is, yeah, super fascinating. I'd love to do more with that in the future. Yeah. I'd love to actually invite, you know, readers, you know, to, to delve in and try to figure out more of it also. I mean, for, you know, my, my book, as I mentioned in the book, it's not meant to be like the final word on these subjects. On a lot of these subjects, like, you know, it's more like a first word, you know, there hasn't been a lot done mm -hmm. on these things. So there's an invitation there certainly to, you know, come join into the investigation. But, but there are the different descriptions of the circular seal they're fascinating. They all like converge, right? So like you've got, um, as you mentioned, the comparison to an Aztec calendar um, gives a certain picture, right? Of the, the sun at the center with rays. And then you, because you've got concentric circles, those rays end up dividing it into different compartments, this concentric, yeah, concentric circles mm -hmm. into compartments and a certain number of compartments, right? Uh, I think there are 12 rays, was it? Or, or, I don't remember how many rays there were, but it, it was something that would like make that. sense. A significant number, yeah. And then um, uh, you look at um, Justice Smith Senior says that uh, um, Luther Bradish, when Martin Harris showed him this transcribed symbol, he couldn't figure out what it was, but he said it looked similar to his. Turkish passport that he had been given by the Ottoman Empire when he was traveling there as a diplomat. Oh, I remember <laughs> that. that. Yeah. Wild. So I went and I tried my best to find an early Ottoman passport. I managed to find one from the 1840s is the closest I could find. But guess what? Crescent and star are some of the, the big Islamic symbols. Mm -hmm. They were symbols of the Ottoman Empire. You've got circular seals on the still on their flag. By the way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got you've got um, crescents and stars. You've got various things that that fit this description that that Anthem gives of uh, the symbol of uh, you've got things. Gladden Bishop gives his own description 
pulling on Martin Harris, right? Where he describes a, a sun in the center, right? And then he describes like uh, rays coming out from the sun, which like goes in along exactly with, you know, Anthon's comparison to an Aztec calendar, mm-hmm. right? And the, the, the I actually, um, so I wasn't able to put the picture of the, uh, the Ottoman passport in the book mm-hmm. uh, because of uh, copyright issues. Mm-hmm. Nobody actually knows who, if anybody holds the copyright on this image. Right. And so um, I put it on my uh, Facebook, the Facebook page for the book, Lost 116 Pages. Good to know. Yeah, because I, 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 I've been looking for that. I couldn't Lost find it. <laughs> pages. You, you can look at that there and then you can compare it. I've got the, the pictures in the book of, you know, the, um, uh, like the Aztec calendar and there you can find that other places as well. But like, I've got all the various descriptions that different people give in the book there. But yeah, fascinating to try to figure out what, what does all this, what did that thing look like and what did this all mean? One last thing on that for a little piece of fun on that, 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 I think needs to be really looked into is, is again, going back to facsimile number two on that, because oh, yeah. the, some of the descriptions on there, obviously there's not a sun, but there is a throne of God in the center based on what Joseph Smith gives us for figure one. Yeah. In fact, if you look at, this is very interesting. Uh, if you look at that symbol, you're going to see a little X. And, and imagine, if you will, taking a, you know, like we did when we were kids uh, in elementary school, imagine taking a, a, a writing compass with the, the, the pointy part and putting it right on that X and then taking your pencil side of that compass and creating a circle. That's exactly what you get with facsimile two. There's an X marks the spot. It's the exact center of the circle mm. on that being made with a compass, right? Mm. Now you also have in there compartments, yeah, right, and and yeah. something that builds out, and you have you have columns of of writing. Is was another description that was on that uh, on that seal. I'm not saying it is a it's a facsimile like an Egyptian facsimile. I'm just saying that there are comparisons, and then I don't know this about about you know I'm not an Egyptologist, but you know, you think about those hypocephaluses as they are, they're used to bring you through the underworld. Yeah. And, and so when you die, you know, it goes behind your head. Yeah. And, and, and just reading your book and the way you describe these as seals, I, I, you know, it just brings up the thought that, is that a seal? Yeah. Right. It's, what is it doing? It's sealing you to Osiris or it's sealing you to, the afterworld, you know, in a sense, I don't know, just again, a little, little bit of fun based off of, of, of what you started here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so I, I think that um, that's, that's really good. So I, I had not gotten all those, those insights. Um, so um, I have thought that, you know, when Joseph Smith acquires the Egyptian papyri in Kirtland, he's got to be reminded by, you know, yeah. that, that, hypocephalus of this symbol from the plates. And that may be part of how he's recognizing like the significance of, of what he's got there. It's divided into, it's circular, it's divided into compartments, it has ast- he, 
it has astronomical significance, mm -hmm. right? Like the sun, moon, and stars and so on. Yep. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. All right. We're going to finish up with this last point that I also found very interesting just to take a couple minutes on it is, and that is the Jewish festivals. Yeah. And, and there's both inside the text of the Book of Mormon, um, you, you, you shed light on, for example, uh, Laban being drunk at a certain time, right? And, and then there's also the Jewish festivals that are occurring with Joseph Smith as he goes through uh, um, the process of bringing to light the Book of Mormon. I want to, I want to start with the idea first of, and, and we'll just, just real quick, is, is uh, the idea of Nephi returning to Jerusalem with his brothers at Passover. What, what helped you come to that conclusion? So um, I had been reading, you know, having gathered different sources that um, would suggest what was in the lost pages of the Book of Mormon or different clues, right? Um, this uh, Joseph Smith senior interview with Fayette Latham was obviously significant there. Um, this had been recognized by a friend of mine, Mark Ashurst McGee of the Joseph Smith Papers Project, um, that when Joseph Smith Sr. gave an account to Fayette Latham, after he tells him the story of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, he tells him this story in the Book of Mormon, right? He tells him the story of the Nephites. And when he gives him that narrative, he tells him some things that are familiar to us from the Book of Mormon, some things that are obviously garblings of things we have in the Book of Mormon, and some things that aren't garblings of what we have, they're just brand new details that aren't in our Book of Mormon text, but if you look at them, they fit. They fit like hand in glove. Mm -hmm. And so my, uh, Mark Ashurst McGee had identified one of these with the story of Mosiah the First, um, well, that I argue is part of the story of Mosiah the First, it has to do with the interpreters. Um, that is, is in this uh, narrative from Joseph Sr. And, um, you know, that he had argued was in the, this from the lost pages. And then looking at that further, I saw that uh, Joseph Smith Sr. was giving details about the story of Nephi and their exodus from Jerusalem that are not in our present Book of Mormon text, but they would fit, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, he's, uh, Joseph Smith Sr. is going along, he's relating uh, how this, this prophet, he doesn't remember, that Latham doesn't remember the name, that Lehi had been warned of God to flee out of Jerusalem, that the prophet had uh, sent his son back, Latham only remembers the, the main son, the one son, um, and you know, he, he sent him back to get this record um, and he tries to get the record, but he's unable to. And then he's like wandering, you know, at night and he comes across someone lying drunk in the street. And he remembers some detail here um, that um, he drew the guy's sword out of his sheath. The guy was drunk. He drew a sword out of his sheath. He remembers like admiring the hilt of the sword, right? Um, and, um, but Latham, Latham's Joseph Smith Sr. report 
gives the detail that Laban was drunk because of a great feast going on in Jerusalem at the time. So um, he doesn't identify the feast, but it, it looks like we're talking about like a Jewish festival context here. Um, you know, so when we read in the Book of Mormon that you know, Laban was drunk, it might we might just think well, he's been out carousing, right? But when we look at the text, the text actually has a number of suggestions that uh, this account is correct, that there's some more formal festival context here. And it's not just he's out carousing. So for instance, if Laban's just out drinking with these buddies, he's got pretty high profile drinking buddies because it says in the text, he was out by night among the elders of the Jews. Mm -hmm. These are the elders of the Jews out drinking with him. Right. Um, Laban also curiously, like he goes out in armor and a sword, right? <laughs> like, like he's full regalia. He's yeah. He's, he's dressed rather formally going out with a rather high profile religious group, right. To drink. And then uh, when Nephi acting as Laban, right. Tells Laban's servant, you know, that he wants to take the, um, the record, the sacred record out to the gates of the city, right? Um, like um, Zoram doesn't bat an eye at this, apparently, you know, um, which, which fits better again with like a, a formal religious context than it does with, you know, carousing with mm -hmm. the guys. Um, so there, there are various things like that. And then there, there are more detailed textual arguments where when you look at what the spirit says, um, to Nephi about why Laban has to die and the wording that it uses. Um, you know, it's better that one man should perish than a nation perish. Uh, those, those very words are used by uh, the high priest Caiaphas mm -hmm. about Jesus at Passover. Mm -hmm. And they actually have a connection with the themes of Passover. It's, it's not a coincidence that those words are used at that time. Yeah, that's, um, that's a strong parallelism right there. If you, look at, the, if you look at the, the calendar, if you look at the timing, you know, Lehi, Nephi has told us that this happened, all happens in the commencement of the first year of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. The biblical account actually tells us when Zedekiah's reign commences. And it turns out it's right around the beginning of the calendar year, uh, which then, you know, we know when Passover falls relative to the calendar year, it's very early in the year. So that fits. There are just so many lines of evidence that point in the same direction. So I've laid that out in um, the book. I've also laid it out in an article uh, in the journal Interpreter uh, about uh, uh, Lehi's, Lehi's Passover. Okay. Great. That's a good reference. I'll put that in the link as well for that. Lastly, Joseph Smith. Um, this is great symbolism for, for everyone who's LDS is, you know, he, he goes four times, right? Four years in a row, as you put it, it's like he's the high priest and once a year at the day of atonement, which is around the fall period, he's goes back, meets Moroni and he goes to the ark Right. And then, and then finally he takes, he's given the plates yeah. on September 22nd, 1827, I believe. Right. Okay. And, and uh, 
that happens to be in the Jewish calendar that year, the day of the Feast of Trumpets, right. which is the first day, first two days basically of Rosh Hashanah, but it's, it's, it's the first day of the days of awe or, or, or the days of repentance, the first 10 days. And what's our symbol that we've typically used, you know, in the past anyway, is, is Moroni sitting up on the temple, on, on the top of the temple with a trumpet, you know, and, it, and it's, it's him that on the Feast of Trumpets brings out the, the, the record, which is the tool for gathering Israel, which is what we do in those temples. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I used to read uh, many, many years ago, um, I think it's, is it John Pratt? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is it John? Yeah, John John Pratt, and I thought, okay, this is interesting. It's kind of fringy, you know, and he kind of puts this stuff together. And but you know, I, after reading your book, I, I, I'm giving him a little bit more credibility on some of these things because the Lord seems to work on a calendar. I mean, it is in the stars, so to speak. It's written in the stars. And go over that just a little bit, just real quick. We've only got a few minutes here. Yeah. Finish up, but of 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 kind of this laying out of the, the Jewish fall festival at, at the time of the, of Moroni and Joseph Smith. So, so just so listeners know, because I don't think I mentioned this up front, the book is divided into two parts. So the first part is like the history of the lost pages. I call it so the coming forth, the translation, the loss of the lost pages. Um, and then the second part is the history in the lost pages. So that's what we can know about the contents. So this, this part that we're talking about right now is the first part of that first section of the book, which, which with, you know, the coming book more, well, the, the coming Sunday school year being Doctrine and Covenant Church history mm -hmm. might be interesting because it's talking about the, the opening events of the restoration. Sure. Um, but some of these opening events really do happen on a very tight Jewish sacred calendar, which amazed me. These are things that I actually was finding just in just as I was finalizing my manuscript for publication, um, and I, I I managed to work them in. Um, but um, as you mentioned, um, September twenty second, Rosh Hashanah, um, Feast of Trumpets um, is you know Joseph Smith happens to get the plates on that day, right? And what he does with the plates on that day is he doesn't bring them home yet. We're told by the Smith family and others. He takes them and he hides them in a hollowed out log in the woods up on Kimura. Um, and then um, we're told by one of the Smith's neighbors who uh, heard from Justice Smith Sr., one of their close neighbors, Willard Chase, that after about 10 days, Joseph goes and retrieves the plates from that hiding place and brings them home. So he had already brought home, by the way, the interpreters, uh, which, which go with them as a mm. sort of sacred relic and, and even like a, a sort of high priestly relic. The Jewish high priest had the Urim and Thummim, right? Parallel to the interpreters. He also had an engraved gold plate, the only one mentioned in the Bible on the front of his crown. Um, mm -hmm. so, so Joseph sort of like reunites the, the interpreters now with these engraved gold plates, brings them home. Um, and this is after about 10 days um, from uh, you know, getting the plates initially. Well, if you look in the Hebrew Bible, 
when the um, festivals are um, at the festival calendar that's set up there, um, the days of awe are the 10 days from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement, wow. right? So it appears that Joseph gets the plates on Rosh Hashanah and then hides them, brings the interpreters home that day, then goes and retrieves the plates from their hiding plates, brings them home, reunites them with the interpreters on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, That's right? fascinating, yeah. Then we can tell from another, these, these tidbits about the chronology have been out there for years. We just never lined them up to see what they mean, okay? So then um, on the, the uh, four days later, right? On the um, 15th day now of the Jewish month, right? Um, you've for 14 days from Rosh Hashanah, yeah. you've got another uh, Jewish festival and you've also got the next thing that happens in the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. So now, Joseph actually, for the first time, uses the interpreters. He looks in them and he sees that Martin Harris is the person who is supposed to help him bring forth the record. And that specifically that Martin is supposed to take a transcript of the characters and take a journey with those to the east to take them to the learned to see if they can read them. Hmm. Right. So um, that happens on... Uh, the uh, the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, right? So, so far we've got three uh, opening events for the, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, starting with Joseph getting the plates and every single one of the three is on the first, is, is on the three Jewish festival dates, right? But by the way, I should have mentioned that the way that we know that it was exactly, you know, 14 days from when he gets the plates uh, and therefore it was the day, the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles, is Lucy Mack Smith is addressing the church at General Conference 18 years later. And that's mm -hmm. Wednesday, October 8th, 1840, um, 1845. Yeah. And she says, um, 18 years ago last Monday was the day that this event had happened. Mm -hmm. Well, we can identify exactly when that was. You know, that's October 6th of um, 1827, 14 days from when Joseph got the plates, right? Yeah. So then um, what about the next big event in the coming forth of the plates, right? Well, um, there are no more Jewish festivals during the, the fall season, but um, if you look at the date that Martin Harris actually gives us the exact date that um, Joseph, um, leaves uh, Palmyra, leaves Manchester with the plates finally, when the Lord allows him, they have, they have a period of testing basically with the plates, right? When people are trying to steal the plates from them. And then Joseph and Emma are eventually allowed by the Lord to leave and head south down to Pennsylvania where they'll be safer with the plates. Well, Martin says that was November 1st. Hmm. So, I counted the number of days between September 22nd and November 1st, and it's exactly 40 days. Now, 40 days has a significance in the Bible, right? So, for instance, Jesus goes through a period of testing of 40 days in the wilderness, the temptation, right? Um, but more directly applicable here, 
when Moses, so, so Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, that the day Joseph Smith went up on the hill right, and got the, the golden tablets in a stone box, right, that feast celebrates when Moses went up on Sinai and got the stone tablets. How long was Moses up on Sinai, according to the biblical account, getting those tablets? 40 days. Mm -hmm. 40 days. So that's the exact time period that Joseph has the golden tablets, right, from Rosh Hashanah to when he's allowed to take those tablets, plates, and go down to harmony with them. Interesting. So every single one of the four opening events that happened with those plates, right, in 1827 is key to the Jewish festival calendar for that year. Mm -hmm. And then I describe in the book um, other, another um, festival connection that I think happens with the, the translation process um, and so on. So. Yeah. That's, that's fabulous. Fabulous. That is great stuff, Don. Like I said, I, I love the book, just ate it up. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this yeah. and uh, go over these things. I, I think that a lot of our, our, our followers here and, and those that listen to this podcast are, are going to uh, uh, feast on, <laughs> on what they're listening to here. So I really do appreciate it. What you got a next project coming up or. Um, I had been hoping to get a book out this year, this coming for this coming year on the first vision. Um, but then you've worked on before. Yeah. Which I've Mm -hmm. done papers on in the past, the life circumstances have interfered with that. I still will be trying to get something out on that, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out right now the best order of projects, but I've got, um, I started doing church history research uh, when I was at the church archives when I was 17. I've got a lot of projects to get, you know, written up and published. So yeah, you'll be hearing, you'll be hearing more from me. And there's, there's a lot more in this book, right. That talks about both the coming forth of the book of Mormon and then what was in those lost pages and how it can shed light on the book of Mormon that we have. I'll have other projects that will deal specifically with the book of Mormon. Um, and look a lot at the, the period, the translation period, things that were going on in the translation period and how those things connect with what's going on with, with Joseph and Oliver and others as the book is coming forward. How were they impacted by the translation as it comes, as it comes forth? Um, and priesthood restoration events, um, a lot of other things. Sounds wonderful. Thanks again. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you.